Well, I'm not sure how many of you know this about me, but uh, before I entered seminary, I was a paramedic for many years. Let me make one thing very clear. If you call a paramedic an EMT, that's like calling a registered nurse a CNA. We don't like it. So, a lot of people are like, oh, do you still do the EMT thing? I'm like, no, I haven't done that since 2008. I'm a paramedic. Anyway, the point is, I'm still a paramedic, all right? And I ride on an ambulance every Thursday. It's very fun. I'm the chaplain for the Hampton Fire Department because my first assignment was in Hampton. I went to paramedic school with one of the battalion chiefs. Bingo, bango, the Lord's Providence. I still ride on an ambulance. It's very fun. So if you're ever in Hampton on a Thursday and you call 911, there's like an 8% chance I might show up. But anyway, one of the beautiful things about the fire service is that uh, on some days you are very, very busy and you do not stop to eat and you are just go, go, go. And then on other days, you get to watch such beautiful movies as National Treasure 2. One of the most completely underrated movies of our time, let me tell you, Nicolas Cage, well, beautiful actor. Anyway, this movie is just like National Treasure 1. So if you're not familiar with it, they steal the Constitution. I'm not really sure what they steal in the second movie, but anyway, at one point they're in the equivalent to the Oval Office in England, they're in the Queen's office and they are like messing with one of her desks. This, it's called the Resolute Desk and it, on it you can like press a button, turn a knob, pull a drawer and it unlocks this beautiful treasure clue. It's not the treasure, but uh, like you have to know how to work the desk. It's been sitting in the Queen's office since whenever we kicked their butt in the Revolutionary War and they did not know that it had this beautiful like intricate inner working, right? So uh, they, they have no idea what they have before them until Nicolas Cage comes along and saves the day. And scripture is the exact same. We have the scriptures, it's in front of us, we read what it says, and if we don't really know how to decipher it, how to press the buttons correctly, how to unlock its true meaning, a lot of it just goes by us and we are unaffected by it. So this morning, I would like to give you a little bit of help deciphering the scriptures we have just heard. So first of all, in the gospel itself, from the gospel according to Mark, we know a few things by the way this gospel is written. One, Mark is not writing to a Jewish audience. The first people to whom the gospel was preached were the Jews. How do we know that Mark is not talking to the Jews? Because he tells them what the Jews do. If they were already Jews hearing what Mark was telling them, he wouldn't have to do the expository narrative. But since they are not Jews that he is talking to, he says, you guys might not know this, but the Jewish people have customs about cleanliness and washing and all of these purification rites. That's why the first third of the gospel today is Mark just explaining to the audience why this was such a big problem that Jesus' disciples, some of whom were Jews, were not washing their hands before they ate. Side note from health on a paramedic level, wash your hands before you eat. But this is why he spends so much time telling the people who are reading or hearing this gospel what the problem is. Because without it, it wouldn't make sense. They wouldn't know how to decipher what's going on. That's just a small example. There are other things in scripture that we have to uh, know how to decode too. And I love that everyone like on, on the outside of the church is always uh, accusing the church of like, you guys have secrets that are kept in the Vatican vaults and 
I mean, yeah, that's probably true. UFOs totally exist and we keep them all housed in St. Peter's, I'm sure about it. But anyway, we do have kind of a secret code. One of the things that I want you to remember from now on, from this day until your last, is that whenever you hear the phrase, I am, you're talking about God. In the Old Testament, when the burning bush is talking to Moses, and Moses asked him, who is it that I should tell them sent me? The Lord reveals the closest thing we have for a name for the Lord. He says, I am, or some translations have it, I am who am. He is a verb, present tense, kind of like the singer Sting. He is just there. He is no past. He is no future. He is all of being. And he says, I am. So that whenever we hear in the Gospels, Jesus say the phrase, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am whatever. When he starts it with I am, you must think this is the same God who was the God of the burning bush for the people of Israel in the desert. This is the same God from the Old Testament to the New. In fact, when they come to get him in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happens? They say, we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he respond? I am. And they fall on their faces. Why? Because that name has power. That name was a big deal to the Jewish people. You could not utter that name. When the people would utter that name, it was once a year, the high priest would come out, he would say the name of God, and the people would fall on their face. So the people listening in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says, I am, are not only reduced to nothing, but they know what he's saying. So whenever you hear the word, I am, followed by a statement from Jesus, think that this is the God of the universe proclaiming himself. Okay, that's one of our secrets. Secret number two is whenever he references himself as the Son of Man, he is talking about the Messiah that was awaited to come. He is telling them, I am the fulfillment of your prophecy. And if you're not God, such a statement like that is very arrogant. But if you are God, such as Jesus, then it's very true. I am the Son of Man. You will see the Son of Man descending upon the angels. The Son of Man comes in glory. All of these phrases that he says, he is telling the people, I'm who you were waiting for in the desert when you were the people exiled. I am the Messiah that you've longed for for hundreds of years. All right, number three, whenever we hear the word, you must always think Jesus. The word. In Greek, we call it logos. This is the way that the original scriptures were written in Greek. We have logos, the word of God. Jesus is the one word of God ever spoken by the Father. For in him contains all words that will ever exist, could be uttered, have been uttered, or will be uttered. He is all-encompassing, for he is the word of God. That is why. When you come to Mass, we read the Word of God, we put such prominence on the Word of God because we're putting such prominence on Jesus. The whole first half of Mass is the liturgy of the Word, the liturgy of Jesus. The whole second half of the Eucharist, I'm sorry, the liturgy is the liturgy of the Eucharist, the liturgy of Jesus. All of these things reference Christ. In the Mass, there are five ways in which you experience Christ in a real presence, as it's called. First and foremost, the Eucharist. We all know that. Second is the people that are gathered. We are the body of Christ. That's a presence of Christ. Third is the singing of the songs and the praying of the prayers. That's formed into one. So that's number three. Finally, we have the Eucharist itself, as I said. And then fifth, we have the priest. 
when he speaks in persona Christi. These are the five real presences of the Lord that you experience. Now, the Eucharist is the preeminent way, but we experience the Lord in five ways when we come to Mass. So whenever you hear in the scriptures it referenced the word, you must think Jesus. So now we go to our second reading. First of all, the letter of St. James in the very opening, just as Mark was telling his audience something that they should know, so does James. He says, all good giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no alteration or shadow caused by change. This is an immutable fact of God. One of the attributes of the Lord, the God Almighty, is that he is unchanging. For if he was subject to change, he would have beginning and end. He would not be constant. He would not be almighty. So therefore, James is telling the people one way that you can count on the Lord, he has stability, is that he is unchanging. There is no alteration or shadow in him. Second, he willed to give us birth by the word of truth. The Father of lights willed to give us birth by the word. Remember, think Jesus. The word is always Jesus. So we are given birth by Jesus, who is the truth that we may be the first fruits of his creatures, it says. We are given adoption as sons and daughters of God through Jesus. Next, humbly welcome the word that has been planted in you and is able to save your souls. What is this word if it is not Jesus? For what word can save us? Only the word Christ, only the word Jesus, he himself, incarnate in flesh, God-man, this is the word that has been planted in us and is the only word that has salvific ramifications, that is able to save our souls. It continues, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deluding yourselves. This is a very strong condemnation of the very Protestant way of thinking of, it's just Jesus and me. I don't have to worry about anyone else. No, no. If you do that, you are deluding yourselves. We must be doers of the word. Who is the word? Again, it is Jesus. I'm hearkening back to this over and over and over again because hopefully it lets you know that this is an important thing. We must not just be hearers of the word, but doers. So what is the work that we must do if we are followers of Jesus and not only hearers of him? Well, it continues. It is to care for orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James is telling us that we must always, always do the corporal works of mercy. And he follows it up immediately by telling us that we must do the spiritual works of mercy. Corporal works of mercy, I do for other people. Spiritual works of mercy, I do mostly by myself. That's how you can remember them. Am I feeding the poor, clothing the naked, giving drink to the thirsty? That's corporal. It has to do with the body. Am I praying for the dead and praying for others? That's spiritual, that I do mostly on my own. So he tells us that we must not be just hearers of the word. We must actually do stuff. A friend of mine, my best friend actually, just asked me the other day when we were talking, he said, what would your ideal parish look like if you were the boss, if you were in control right now, what would you do to make a parish look the way you want it? I said, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Here's exactly what I'd do. I would have a parish so focused on social ministry that it looks like a crazy 70s parish in the Catholic Church from a couple of decades ago. 
so focused on everyone outside, man, we'd have every ministry under the sun. It'd be great. And it would be so liturgically orthodox that it would make Cardinal Seurat in Rome blush. It would be beautiful. Because that is the beautiful wedding of doing and hearing. We must not only go out and preach to others, but we first must be fed. We are fed by the spiritual works of mercy, and we help the body of Christ by doing the corporal works of mercy. So we can't just come to Mass and think, I'm doing my obligation, this is a good thing for me on Sunday, and that's it for the rest of the week. We must always be looking to care for orphans and widows or those in need, those who are having a hard time, those whom we can help and are presented in front of us. And we must always be first filling up our own reserve by praying every day. This is non-negotiable. One must pray every day. And in that way, we become doers of the word and not just hearers. For it would be terrible to get to heaven and hear the Lord say, well, you deluded yourself. You thought you were doing great, but you left everyone else in their anguish. Much rather, I would have him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful in small matters. Now share the reward of your father.